passage today is 1 Kings 19, 9 to 18. So if you would turn our hearts to, to God's word this morning. Oh yes, and the kids are dismissed to children's church. I think that's happening. 1 Kings 19. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Melhola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is God's word. So, there's two things I want to kind of bring out of our passage today. Kind of two different angles so, I mean, God is doing two things in this word. One is he's, he's addressing Elijah and, and Elijah's situation and concern. So as we look through this, we'll see how God is, is, is dealing with his prophet and trying to restore Elijah back to, to, to being able to do ministry again. Because we talked about last week how he, he just collapsed in his faith. But there's also some theology going on here. God is introducing some, some teaching about God and how to deal with him that's coming up in this passage. And I want to start by thinking that out a little bit and kind of opening the way so we can see it as it comes up. In the ancient world, there were four basic elements of nature, of the, 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 the world. Aristotle lays them out. You may know them. Earth, water, air, and fire. They would have said everything on earth is composed of those four basic elements. Now, we, we in our modern days, 
we have much more elements. Sorry, we have we have a periodic table. Is anyone? How many elements are now on the periodic table? Nineteen. One eighteen. Okay, yeah, one hundred eight. Like keep they keep finding more and all that stuff. So we have lots more elements, um, but you still drill down everything. You have matter, right? And and the world that is made up of matter. And what our modern world has tried to argue is that the only thing that exists is matter. That that there there is no nothing beyond this material world. That the universe is and was and always will be, and that's just that's just what it is. And any appearance of something beyond this world is a a figment of our imagination. So that doctrine that everything we see is made up of matter and, and energy is called materialism. There is no God. There is no divine things beyond that. And sometimes that gets confused um, as, as the idea that, that science is the only way to truth, that science has answered all the questions about this world. And so they discount anything that comes from any other source of wisdom. Now, I'm in no way anti-science. I love science. I, I think it's done great things. Um, but what I want to suggest is that we as believers in Christ – we, we know there's something more. That science does not have every answer. That, that there's something beyond this material world that we need to pay attention to. And in fact, as believers, we believe God made this world. He, he put into existence, called into existence, all the, the matter and energy that we see. And moreover, he gave it order. And, and set up rules and laws by which we operate. In fact, it is those rules and laws which make science possible. Because if, if the world just operated randomly, you couldn't study it and come to conclusions. It's only because there is a, a orderer, you know, a, an ultimate God who set order in place that we're able to study and make observations and, and come up with the scientific truths that we, we've come but what we say is, yes, God made this world, put order behind it, but there's still more to it. There is actually a spiritual existence that will break into this world, a divine being who, who reserves the right to break into this world. One who comes from, you might think of it as a separate dimension. God exists he, he is a part of this world, but he, he you know, we, we pray to our Father who art in heaven. His, his dwelling place is above and beyond. It's not part of this universe. We're not going to find it by exploring the galaxies that we live in. But God lives in this other dimension by which he sets the rules for this world and he watches over it. And when God chooses to break into this world, he does it by his spirit. Jesus um, said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him by spirit and in truth. So God is not made up of the stuff of this world. God has his existence of his own. And when he breaks into this world, it is by his spirit. And that's what we're, we're seeing come up within this passage. So to remember where we're at, Elijah 
is a prophet of the Lord, of Yahweh, and he has been combating, battling against the, the introduction of Baal worship into Israel. Israel has been forsaking its covenant relationship with the Lord by worshiping other gods. Ahab, the king of Israel, has built a temple for Baal. His wife, Jezebel, has been working to, to stamp out belief in Yahweh by killing the prophets. And, and so... We've talked this last few weeks how God engineered this incredible showdown on Mount Carmel where, where God proves himself, the Lord proves himself to be the true God by sending fire from heaven and establishing that Elijah's in the right and these other prophets are not, not real. Baal is not real, a real God, but God is. But afterwards, Elijah was so devastated probably by the, 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 the situation he's been in for so long that, that he is now collapsed in his faith. He, we talk about how he was depressed. And so God, in order to restore Elijah, has sent him on this long journey, sent him out of the land of Israel, down to the south, and now has sent him down to Mount Sinai, or it's also called Mount Horeb. This is the same mountain in which God had... Um, given to Moses the Ten Commandments, in which God had established his covenant with Israel. What I would suggest is that Elijah did not really need to travel this 40-day journey to Mount Horeb to encounter God. God could have met him anywhere. But a couple things needed to happen. One of all is Elijah needed time away, time out of the battle. So the pilgrimage was part of part of the, the work. The second thing is, is God is calling to mind within this passage that covenant he made with Israel long ago. And he wants to rebuild that covenant. And so that's why it is there that Elijah will have this, this encounter with God. He gets there and he's lodged in a cave. And then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And it's interesting how God approaches him. With the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I've, I find this curious because I, there's times when I, I, I've sensed clearly God's voice in some way. And so often when I've done that, and it, it, it's in the special way that I hear God, it's, it's pretty rare, actually. It's not that common that I kind of have this sense that it's definitely God and not, not my own mind. But when it does come, it tends to be in the form of a question. God would ask, are you willing to trust your life to me? And so I find it interesting that God approaches Elijah with a question, not a command, not an accusation. Elijah responds. Talks about how he has been zealous for God. For, for you know, Talked about how he's been fighting in this battle um, to, to, to keep Israel's true to the covenant. And then he, he lays out the situation, right? The four things. They have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars, the places where they would worship God. They have killed your prophets. And now they're seeking to take my life. It's a pretty dark situation. And, and it's true. He's laying out the facts. But I, I notice he leaves some things out. Right, he's giving the very negative aspects of what's going on. He, but he, he, he leaves out that 
actually they just had that great victory at Mount Carmel where the people in the end were, were chanting, you know, the Lord is God. And it leaves out the fact that Ahab is, is, you know, happy there's rain. And so, but it's, it's Jezebel who's really been the force trying to kill Elijah. In other words, I wonder if Elijah is a bit trapped in just seeing things from the negative perspective that he's unable to kind of, to, to get out and see the potential positives or the good things that are happening. Have you ever tried to argue someone out of a negative, pessimistic perspective? Did it work? I don't, I don't know how, what, and, and I know God does not argue with Elijah. He does not start to say to Elijah, well, here's all the good things that are happening. Instead, he knows he needs to change Elijah's whole mindset. And so instead of arguing with Elijah, he's going to give him an experience of his presence. And so Elijah goes out to the, the, the mouth of the cave. So he's still protected from what's going to happen next, but he's able to see what's going on on this mountain, the mountain of God. And there, the first thing he sees is this incredible hurricane force wind ripping through the mountain, lifting up stones and even causing stones to break, tearing the in pieces. And, and it's obvious there's all this power and energy. This must be God's presence. But then it says, no, the Lord is not in the mighty wind. God controls it. He's sovereign over it, but that's not what he consists of. And then after the wind comes an earthquake and it, it doesn't give as much detail, but you can imagine your feet coming out from underneath you going up and down and shaking the whole mountain. Again, rocks are breaking. Things are falling apart. The, the energy behind this, it, who, who could alone could shake the very foundations we stand upon? This must be God's presence. But no, the Lord was not in the earthquake. He could make it happen, but that's not where we find him. And then the last one, fire burns throughout the whole mountain the flame, the heat, the, 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 the smoke, the everything that's going on there. And, and this is how God has appeared in the past, right? God has appeared as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And, and Elijah could remember when God sent fire down to burn up the sacrifice. This must be God, this, this burning fire. But once again, no, the Lord is not in the fire. God is conveying something with this, right? He's teaching that he, he, is, he is sovereign over these natural forces and he can rule over them and control them. They, they don't, they're not stronger than him. And yet, it is only when he, Elijah hears a gentle whisper of a wind, as light as you can imagine, coming to him. And it is only then that the Lord is with him, that the presence of God comes to the prophet. The timing of these sirens is um, interesting. I, I mean, I, not to make light, I know we, we pray God speed them on their way to whoever's in need. Um, it's in that gentle whisper 
that Elijah experiences God's presence and the, the conversation now continues. Um, it's then that he talks with God. God has shown in this passage and before that he is master of the four basic elements that the ancients saw the world as being, right? He had already shown he was, uh, had control over water by withholding rain for three years. Now we see he's also master of air, the wind, and, and of earth with the earthquake, and of fire. And so he is sovereign over these, the elemental forces of the universe. But the living God is not to be found in those elements. In the, the other gods, when they depicted them, what would they do? They would pick something from this world, an image of a bull or whatever, and, and they would make an image of their God by that thing. God said, do not do that for me. You will not find me as part of this world. I am holy, holy, holy. I am other. He is the God of wonders beyond our galaxy. He is holy. He's this unseeable power that transcends everything. And yet he, he is within his universe through his spirit. His spirit is alive and active in this world. It is that gentle whisper that we can learn to hear from. He can speak into our hearts, speak into our lives. It is sometimes a voice that is difficult to hear. Because the world we live in is loud and, and it shouts and there's clamor and there's distractions. And the only way we're really going to hear from God is if we're willing to sometimes step out of the busyness of our life and, and put our focus on God and be alone with him to listen and hear what he has to say. We need to learn how to hear that gentle, low voice of God's spirit in our life. Isaiah 30 says this says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy one of Israel says in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. So often as God's people, we, we embrace the, the clamor of the world. Instead of giving time to speak in, God time to speak into our hearts by quieting ourselves. By seeking him in his rest and in his, in his um, strength. After Elijah then has this experience, the conversation continues, and I find this fascinating. Verse 13, God says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? The same question. And, and even more, Elijah gives the same exact answers about they turn from your covenant, they're tearing down your altars, they're trying to kill me. The situation of Elijah has not changed. But I would suggest something fundamental has changed. Now Elijah has, has this experience he could feel of God's sovereign power. And that changes everything. It's not that our situation is not tough sometimes. It's that the God we, we worship and follow is far more and above, has more power than we can imagine. And, and the things we deal with are nothing to him. When we can remember how awesome and powerful our God is, it puts our problems, our struggles into perspective. And then God gives an answer. He actually gives very specific 
things for Elijah to do. God is going to guide him and and get involved. And I actually am not going to get into the specifics of this. We're going to touch a little bit more on this next week. But he's he's given to he's going to anoint someone to be a new king of Syria, which is actually a, a foreign country to Israel. He's going to anoint a new king of Israel. And, and then he's going to anoint and pick out someone to be a prophet after him. And what I would suggest is last week we talked about what, what was Elijah's struggle? Well, he, he, he was afraid, right? He's, and he was also alone. And he was also um, had feelings of being a failure. He felt alone. He felt like a failure. And he was afraid for his life. And I would say each of these things God is dealing with, a new king in Syria would, would take away the danger. God's going to himself deal with the, the, the threats of armies. A new king for Israel would, would turn things around in what Israel's experiencing. And a new prophet to work with Elijah will, will make it so that Elijah's not in the battle alone. He will have someone working with him. What I want to suggest... Is So God is giving Elijah an answer, but he's also suggesting the way he will deal and interact with his people going forward. And, and I think you actually see a shift in the Bible from this point. God, in, prior to this, would often appear in, in ways like as in the, the burning bush or a pillar of fire. God would take physical form to talk to his people. Um, or he would come as what's known as the angel of the Lord, in which God's presence would be in the form of a human being that people could talk to. Um, some would say that that's the, the pre-incarnate form of Jesus speaking to. And you'll see that a lot in Genesis and, and up until that point. But after this event, most entirely God deals with his people through his spirit. Um, you'll notice it, it I, I miss saying this, when, when Elijah went out and he talked to God, it says he covered his face with his cloak. In other words, he didn't see, he just heard. He heard the voice of God. The prophets going forward from Elijah would hear the voice of God and, and communicate that to the people. God would speak to his prophets through the spirit and they would make that communication to the people. He would sometimes also use visions and dreams in the night. But more and more, God would, would interact with people through his spirit. And then what we celebrate today is Pentecost Sunday. And that is the day when God poured out his spirit upon the followers of Jesus Christ. So Chantel said that, that he poured him out on the apostles of Jesus. It wasn't just the twelve. It was all the followers of Christ gathered together. In other words, the, this would be the experience, not for the special people, but for all who turn to Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit as an indwelling presence, as, a, as God speaking in their life. That is how God is engaging his people now, through his spirit. I've been reading, rereading a book by J.R. Packer called Knowing God, and, and I've thrown it out there. It is a great book. If, if you've never read it, it's a good book to get established in your faith. And, and so J.I. Packer, he offers a counterfactual, a Christian counterfactual. Do you know what a counterfactual is? 
it's like, what if it happened this way? So one of the most famous ones is, what, what if the Germans would have won World War II? How would history play out? So he offers a Christian counterfactuals. What if God had not sent the Holy Spirit after Jesus had been raised? So in other words, we, Jesus came, he died on the cross, he gave our life for his sins, he was, he was raised, the, the resurrection happened, and Jesus was exalted to heaven. What if God wouldn't, wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit? And what Packer goes through, because he says sometimes we, we miss out on what the Spirit does, um, he says if, if he did that, there would, first of all, there'd be no, um, there'd be no gospel, no New Testament, Think about the, the, the disciples. What kind of students did they show themselves to be? They always misunderstood Jesus. They, they never seemed to get what he was talking about. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit speaking to them and kind of guiding them into truth, they would have never got there. Um, and that's what Jesus said in John 14. He says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it's because of the Holy Spirit that we have the gospel um, being able to be spelled out. And we have the New Testament. If it, if it wasn't for that, I don't, God was not, Jesus was not going to rely strictly on the memory of his disciples to make sure they got it right. He was going to send the Spirit as part of that. So that's, that's one thing Packer says. Another thing Packer says is, uh, would be true if, there, if the Holy Spirit had never been sent is that there would be no power for, for sharing the witness and no church expansion. Um, it's in Acts 1.8, it says, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And, and then you will then be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. On their own, the disciples would have probably huddled together and, you know, stayed amongst themselves. Maybe they would have followed Jesus' teachings on their own. But, but they, were, they were not in such a state where they were going to take that out and share that. It, it's, it's only when the Holy Spirit would come upon them that they had the boldness needed to, to go forward with the message of Christ. And it's only because the Holy Spirit would direct them that they would actually start taking the message to new places, to, to, to go to different lands. Otherwise, it would have just stayed where they were. The third thing that we wouldn't have if there no spirit had come is there'd be no faith and no new birth, right? It's only when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and awakens us to God's life. It says the, the God of this age has blinded the, the unbelievers so they cannot see. God has to, by his spirit, enlighten us from inside so that we could recognize the truth of the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit, we, we would still be in the dark. It's not just our choice that matters. It is God's empowerment within that enables us. That's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the, the new birth. When he says, if anyone would, would enter and see my kingdom, they must be born from above. I mean, born of God's spirit in their life. So the Holy Spirit is essential in, in what God is doing. And so I love this passage in Joel 2 that we, we read earlier in the service 
And let me read it again. It, it's, it's, it was an Old Testament prophet talking about what God would do. And it's describing what would happen at Pentecost Sunday. It says, It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You see what that's saying? The Holy Spirit is not just for the special people like Elijah and the prophets. He's going to pour it out on his servants, on all flesh, on all who turn to Jesus, on men and women, on young and old, on, on male and female servants. It doesn't matter our status. And so God wants his people to follow him in the spirit. We are called to learn how to recognize that quiet, humble voice of God. Say there's three things as I, as I was thinking about like, what, what do you need to, 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 to may, maybe you have not experienced God's spirit much in your life. And it just seems like hypothetical. Three things. First, seek. Seek him. He's real. Just say, it could be simple as God, I, I don't always feel close to you. I don't, I don't know if I, I know you. I, I want to know you. Send your spirit into my heart. Seek him. Secondly, an aspect of, of connecting with the spirit, surrender. You see, we want to be in control. We want to make decisions about what we will do and where we'll go. But when you open yourself up to God, you have to surrender control to him. And so say, Spirit, I trust you to lead me where you want me to go. I trust my life into your hands. I, this is hard to do, isn't it? I surrender control to you. I know that you know better for me than I know for myself. So seek him, surrender to him, and then learn. Learn how to recognize that gentle whisper. It, it, it's, it's in those times that we start to do it. it. It doesn't come automatically. That's why it's such a quiet voice. Learn, learn to get away and, and hear where God is leading you as you get to know that voice. That's why it's a relationship. We get to know him as he, as he reveals himself to us in these opportunities. Seek, surrender, and learn. One of the ways in which we, we invite God to speak into our lives is we share together in the Lord's Supper. And we, we, God uses these normal things of this earth, bread and, and wine or juice, and we um, share that and knowing that God's Spirit makes it for us his body, and his blood. And so we're going to close our service with that. And what I want to do, I had, in my email, had sent out that I invited you to bring your own bread if you prefer, or if not, we have the, the, the cups up here at the table. If, if you brought your own bread, I want you to um, share that with your, your family right now. And, and pass those around and get it ready. And as you're doing that, think about 
the Holy Spirit's role in your life. And, and, and I'll invite the worship team to come up and, and get ready for a song. But kind of take this moment to get things set for sharing communion together.